Welcome to the Firearms Trainers Podcast, part of the ConcealCarry.com network. I'm your host, Rob Beckman. Today, we'll be talking about deadly force encounters. We bring this podcast to support the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every firearm instructor in America that dedicates time and energy into making gun owners more knowledgeable. This episode is also brought to you by our friends at the FTA, the Firearms Trainers Association. Head on over to their website, ftaprotect.com, to learn more about their instructor coverage they offer and their competitive pricing. Receive a special 10% off on your policy by entering promo code FTP10. This episode is also brought to you by NA Tactical. As instructors, our students are always asking us what gear we use, and I always tell mine, I use NA Tactical. Do you know NA Tactical offers several designs, each with extreme comfort for all-day carry? The Revenant and Professional holsters have a patented, tuckable design, adjustable cant, and secure twist release. My personal favorite is the K01. It is an all-Kydex appendix holster that I can carry all day in comfort. All of N8's Tacticals holsters come with a two-week try-it guarantee and a lifetime warranty, even on the clip. Remember to check out their Flex Mag Carrier also. It has a three-layer comfort backer and will accommodate several sizes of magazines. Find out more or just send your students to n8tactical.com. That's letter N, the number eight, tactical.com. Today, we are joined by Dr. Alexis Artwald. Dr. Artwald is an international recognized behavioral science consultant to law enforcement as a trainer, researcher, and author. She has extensive training in the U.S., Canada, Mexico, the United Kingdom, and Jordan. She is on the National Advisory Board of the International Law Enforcement Educator and Trainers Association. She serves as the Behavioral Science Section Chair for the National Tactical Officers Association. Dr. Altwall is co-author of the book, Deadly Force Encounters, and other publications. During her 16 years as a private practice clinician and police psychologist, she's provided consultant to multiple agencies throughout the Pacific Northwest, as well as traumatic incident debriefing and psychotherapy to numerous public safety personnel and their families. Welcome, Dr. Artwell. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine, thank you. And I just want to hear just a little bit, just, just for to make everything absolutely factual. Okay. Uh, I retired mostly from law enforcement training about a year and a half ago, uh, just because I got tired of all the airplane travel and uh, you know some family health issues and stuff. So I decided I didn't want to be on the road anymore after 25 years of uh, service. And as a result of that, I have resigned my advisory capacity to IWEDA uh, and the NTOA just because I'm no longer really doing a lot of active training. So I wanted to you know, turn those positions over to other people who are still a lot more actively involved. So I'm just kind of uh, doing more mentoring and consulting rather than you know, a lot of active training out there right now. That sounds good. And yeah. uh, your mentorship is greatly appreciated, I know, by many of us in the uh, firearms training industry. Um, one, one of the biggest things I think most of our instructors out there probably will recognize you from is most of us that teach the United States Concealed Carry Association, their uh, Concealed Carry Home Defense Fundamentals. There's a slide in there where we take the quotes directly from the Deadly Force Encounters book about, um, you know, the physiological effects of stress on people, the tunnel vision, the uh, auditory exclusion, false memories, and uh, memory lapses. And, you know, we educate our, our civilian classes of what to expect during those encounters. So it's really great to have you on the show today because, as I said, I've, I've taught that class for close to five years now, and now I have the actual author on the, on the show. So I'm really uh, pumped up about today's, uh, today's show, to say the least. 
I'm very honored to be part of your slideshow. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, um, some things uh, ask you about when it when it goes along with your new book, which is an uh, update uh, for it. You've almost uh, looking at them here, and they're almost twice as big as what it was on Deadly Force Encounters. Um, can you tell us what originally drove you to do the volume one of, of that book, or I guess the first edition of the book? Sure, I'll be happy to do that. Uh, I did my inter my clinical internship uh, back in the eighties, early eighties. Uh, at the San Francisco VA Medical Center. And while I was there, I wound up doing a lot of um, PTSD work with combat veterans, with all, combat veterans from World War II all the way through the Vietnam era. Uh, and as a result of that, I, I became very interested in how people cope with extreme stress. And uh, I, when I uh, graduated from my postdoctoral residency in Portland, Oregon, I went into private practice and continued to have an interest in that area. And I was seeing, you know, civilians who were involved in traumatic incidents. And at a conference on uh, trauma, I ran into uh, the uh, person who at that time, this is, you know, this is uh, 30 years ago, so he's not there anymore. But at the time, he was the person who was uh, coordinating, there's kind of employee assistance program. And one of his duties was to try to find mental health professionals who could provide debriefings and psychotherapy to officers who've been involved in shootings and other traumatic incidents. And once he heard about my uh, experience with combat veterans, he uh, was said, would you be willing to do that? And I said, well, sure. So uh, he started sending some officers to me. Now, uh, the officers and I hit it off right away. And I think that's probably because of my own personality. I grew up in a military family. I've always been kind of a an advent, outdoor adventure person, uh, really enjoy challenges and that kind of thing. And I could really relate to what they were doing out there. And I started going on ride-alongs and you know, doing a lot of, actually, one of my biggest sources of education besides ride-alongs was reading police fiction, uh, like all the Joseph Wambaugh books and anything else I'd get my hands on just to get an insight into the personality and the challenges that officers faced. And I, I really enjoyed working with them. Uh, they, you know, I, I was told by, uh, when I was working with the soldiers at the VA hospital, uh, they said, okay, just, just be aware that, you know, this is gonna be a problem, uh, it's gonna be hard because, you know, you're a woman and you've never been in combat and you're not a veteran. So you're right off the bat, you know, that they're not gonna trust you. And I said, well, yeah, I, I can understand that. Uh, and what I found out was, sure, there's always a little bit of suspicion at first, as is appropriate. One of the things I really liked about the cops and the veterans is the fact that they were skeptical. They were very much show me kind of people. You know, I'm just not going to take your word for it. Show me what you got, which I, I really admire that. Uh, and what I found was what you had to demonstrate to them is, A, you knew what you were doing, uh, that you were competent, that you genuinely cared. Uh, to understand what they were doing and you cared about them as an individual, and you had something to offer them that they could actually use to make their life better. And once you established those three things, you were in, and all resistance was gone. Uh, so I found that actually combat soldiers and officers are actually very receptive to debriefings and psychotherapy, and the debriefings are basically training. So an officer gets involved in a shooting, they come in to see me, I saw it as my duty to educate them about 
how the, the human body, I mean, human mind operates, what's normal, what isn't normal, uh, to kind of cue them in on kind of what to expect. This is how the kind of recovery process might unfold. This is how it might impact your family members. Uh, and they greatly appreciated having that information. How I got started in the training was the officers were coming in to see me and uh, some of them started to say things like, and, and what I realized as part of the education process, I started making handouts. So I, I make a handout on uh, you know, tunnel vision and all that, all those sorts of issues on, on a whole variety of issues related to what they had been through. So I just type up a handout and I give it to them. And uh, sometimes it was recommended reading and, and said, you know, take this home, let your family look at it. Uh, and they greatly appreciated it. And so the uh, officers would say things like, Doc, this has been great information. I wish I had known this before I got into my shooting five years ago, because it would have cleared up a lot of things. I would have been able to cope with it a lot better just having this knowledge. Uh, so would you be willing to come in to my agency? This is the, the Portland Police Bureau. I did not work for the Portland Police Bureau. I was an independent contractor, uh, but they would occasionally have civilians come in to the police academy to uh, do training. They said, would you be willing to come into our police academy and train our officers or in-service training. And I said, okay. So I told some of the officers uh, that, you know, I was being recruited to do this by the officers, not, not by the brass, but by the officers. And they said, oh, Doc, you don't want to do that. I said, well, why not? And they said, oh, cops are brutal. Uh, they send civilian <laughs> instructors out of there all the time in tears. And I thought to myself, okay, well, that gave me pause. However, uh, these officers, they went out and they put their life on the line for me. The least I can do is walk into the lion's den and put my ego on the line for them. So I made up a, a two-hour class on uh, the issues that I discuss in my book. And uh, if you've ever taught police academies, uh, it's not the most responsive audience. They often sit there pretty stony-faced. So you're, sometimes it's really hard to tell what kind of an impact you're having. Uh, but they were very receptive to the information. And uh, I even learned to allow a little extra time after the class when I was walking back to my car to go back to my office because uh, occasionally there would be an officer in the parking lot and then I was walking to my car. He come out and say, hey, Doc, you got a minute? Uh, and that would be kind of a mini educational session, typically of an officer who'd been involved in something and had questions about what he had been through. It was extremely rewarding. And... Uh, really appreciative than the detectives when they heard about you know, the memory issues and stuff that, wow, you know who really needs this information? The detectives who are investigating these incidents because we need to know this stuff. I was really somewhat taken aback when I started working with the officers about how little information they had about what to me was pretty much basic psychology 101 stuff. Um, and here they are out there operating in a complex environment, having to make decisions, being judged, having to do the investigations. Uh, so it was really rewarding to be able to bridge the gap between the academic research and uh, what the officers were doing, which that really became my whole goal was to bring that science into the world of law enforcement. And then the officers, uh, how the book came about, the officers said, uh, hey doc, why don't you why don't you take these handouts and these trainings and, and write a book about it? Because I have, you know, 
a friend who works at X agency over in, you know, 10 states away, he'll probably never get a chance to meet you or hear you talk or have a session with you. But, you know, now I've been sending on some handouts, but you know, if you could write a book, you no, know, I could just send them a book or have them buy the book. So anyway, that's how the book came about. So it, it really wasn't my idea so much as it was the idea of the officers. So they, they're the ones who invited me into their world. They're the ones who kind of swept me along uh, into, yeah, yeah, we need this information. Keep it coming, keep it coming. So I hats off to the officers, the Portland Police Bureau, who made this all happen. The niche found you and you filled the niche. That's great. Yeah, I, I really, I really, I, I remember when I first started working for, with the officers early on after um, uh, doing some of the debriefings and doing some of the ride-alongs, I just remember sitting around one day and it just kind of hit me and said, you know, th- this is what I was born to do. This, this is what I was meant to do is to help these men and women out there who are putting their lives on the line for us. Well, I don't get invited to police academies right now, but I have done uh, several classes uh, for police officers, and uh, I, I agree with you. You know, they put their all lives online, and the least we can do is help them and give them the best training available. So, yeah, and 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 I've also come to realize uh, the same thing uh, is helpful to the concealed carry community. I'm a concealed carrier myself, uh, and when I wrote Deadly Force Encounters, the second edition, I. Uh, Lauren and I very specifically wanted to make it equally relevant to the concealed carry community. Uh, for instance, if you look at the uh, some of the research done by um, Ron Borsch on uh, active shooter situations, uh, his research shows that if, uh, in active shooter situations where uh, the uh, bad guy is stopped by third-party intervention. He calls him rapid mass murder, and he has a very specific specific criteria to distinguish them from other crimes like gang shootings and so on and so forth. Uh, he found that uh, of the uh, rapid mass murderers who were stopped by third-party intervention, uh, those at least half of them are often stopped by not by the police, but by civilians. Is you know, mm-hmm. back to the old one. Seconds count. The cops are only minutes away. Uh, so the officers uh, have done a great job of shutting a lot of these uh, uh, murderers down. But many of them have been shut down by civilians. Uh, in fact, probably as many as the cops have shut down. And some of the civilians were armed. Some of them weren't. But God bless them. They went out there. Uh, you know, it, most of them weren't had no body armor. Uh, they didn't have radios. Uh, they couldn't call for backup. Uh, they probably don't have the uh, liability protections that the police officers have. So mm-hmm. they never really hanging themselves out there. Uh, and I thought, you know, these people are, are real heroes. Yep. And they, they deserve as much recognition in the book and as much urging for training and help as we give the police officers. So for all the concealed carrier uh people out there who are thinking about uh, training and, uh, you know, God forbid ever having to actually do that. You know, you're uh, one of the officers who I interviewed in my book. He calls you guys are force multipliers who are valuable assets to your communities and to the police force. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think one thing I took away from the book that I thought was really interesting was from the time that the blood starts flying that, you know, there's, you know, an active shooter, mass murderer, it can be five to seven minutes before first responders get there. 
And, you know, I know a lot of times people go along and say, well, you know, I was there within two minutes of the 911 call. Well, guess what has to happen first? Somebody's got to dial 911. They've got to get a hold of somebody and then they got to communicate. And that's that, and that's part of the time that sometimes isn't always, uh, you know, accounted for in those uh, response time estimates because you just take it from the time you got the call to the time you get there and don't factor in the amount of time that it took for somebody to get to the phone or, or for the operator understand exactly what's going on, all those kind of factors. And right. I, I can, I can believe that 50% of the active shooters, uh, you know, are stopped by civilians, you know, yeah. you know, yeah. legally, legally armed civilians that are willing to, you know, hang themselves out there, which, you know, we can get into the whole legal subject about, you know, how, how far you hang yourself out there. Right. But, um, right. you know, they think about their fellow, um, fellow human beings before they think about themselves when they do that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's amazing. And, and, and like I said, a lot of them weren't even armed. They just found a way to stop the person. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And that's where, you know, having, having the proper mindset, you know, comes in because sometimes it's best to just get out of there. And other times, you know, if you've got the ability to stop something from happening, you've got to, you know, again, figure out, okay, what are you willing to put yourself and your family through? Because if something goes wrong or your, or the media gets, you know, decides to take it a different direction or different things like that, you and your family are going to be in it for the ride. And it's not something that's going to be just an hour or two. It's, it could be a couple of years um, for it. And that's where it can be uh, extremely tough. You know? Yeah. That's why I call it the survival triangle. You know, the the apex of the triangle is physical survival. uh, And that's going to be over pretty quickly uh, in a matter usually of seconds or a few minutes. Uh, And if you, so the apex is obviously that's the most important thing is you've got to physically survive whatever it is that's been thrown at you. But in the case of certainly a use of force situation, now you need to be very concerned about your emotional and your legal survival. And most officers and civilians who've been through these events will tell you the aftermath was by far the most stressful part of the event. Uh, and, you know, in terms of the legal survival, uh, I tell people, you know, you see what the officers go through, and I hope everyone is paying very close attention uh, to what's happening with the McCluskeys and Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, that you can become a target of the media and malicious prosecution, just like police officers. And uh, you better have, you better know what your legal representation is going to be. Mm-hmm. You know, don't be carrying a weapon around. And even if you're not carrying a weapon around, even if you wind up getting in an altercation with someone uh, and you wind up you know, braining them with a baseball bat or a pipe in self-defense, uh, you still could wind up getting prosecuted. You could wind up getting civilly sued. Uh, you are putting yourself in a huge legal risk. And uh, you really need to be very, very informed about what you're going to do to legally survive and uh, be very concerned about the emotional survival of yourself and your family. Because once mm-hmm. the once the incident is over, that's when the hard part starts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, you know, defending yourself will be the easy part. You know, right there from the physical danger, but it's going along and saying, okay, is it going to be you know, 
one month, one year, or is it going to be, you know, like five years that you're going to be going along and, um, you know, having to defend yourself, you know, I'll bring up, you know, George Zimmerman, you know, George Zimmerman case is close to 10 years old and he still is very high name recognition among everybody. Now think yeah. about that. If that was your name or my name and people could say it anywhere in the country and people like, yep, I, I understand exactly. And also with that is, oh, I believe that he was guilty or I believe he was not guilty. You know, you get, you get that kind of um, a response from people. And, uh, yeah, and, and look what the, the media did to Richard Jewell. Mm-hmm. So that wasn't even a use of force incident. He, he just was a hero who was trying to intervene and, uh, you know, help people during the bombing. And uh, the, the media turned on him. Don't, I have, you know, I, I don't know the details of that. The movie has recently come out that hopefully illuminates some of that. I haven't seen it yet. Uh, but you know, what they did to that man was absolutely disgraceful. And that, that can happen to any of us that get caught up in some kind of a high-profile situation. Yeah, uh, what I call is the meat grinder. You know, once exactly. you get your hand in the meat grinder, it's just about impossible to pull out of it. And it's, yeah. you're along for the ride. And that's uh, yeah. a very graphic, uh, graphical picture about it. But, you know, when you think about what these people have gone through that, you know, and put it this way, people have been found innocent. So, you know, I'm not trying to defend anybody who's guilty of something, but, you know, they get drunk, drugged through a meat grinder by the, by the media. Yeah. And, and it's not going to happen every time. I don't want to create undue paranoia. Most of the time things go reasonably well, uh, even for, even for the officers, but you, you can't predict which incident is going to blow up in your face. And, uh, and even if you do get caught up in the meat grinder, if you are prepared, you can certainly mitigate the damage and emerge okay on the other side. But you need to be prepared. You don't, yep. you don't want to go into it uninformed and without any protection. I've been a Boy Scout my entire life, and uh, you know the motto is "Be prepared." So Absolutely. you know it it, 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 pay, it pays to go along, and that's where you know I've recommended your book. You know uh, the first uh, edition, and then the second edition with the um, you know the armed citizens and such. It's also a very good read uh, for it because there's uh, a lot a lot of things in there where you start going long. You know you talk about the triangle, but also being you know recommending that you know civilians have you know first aid training you know have some kind of way of of uh you know taking care of uh, themselves because again first responders can be five to seven minutes away on the on a good day right you know? right and, yeah. and bless their hearts five or five to seven minutes that's a fast response yeah. um, uh, but when the lead's flying and bad guys are on the rampage uh that is an eternity and you just yeah. Try to hold your breath for five, five to seven minutes and see what happens. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't happen. You know, it doesn't happen at all. Um, what were some of the areas that you expanded on your second book? Cause I know it's almost twice as thick. You've added the uh, part of civilian defender to it and the uh, triangle. Was there, was there specific areas that you really wanted to expand on um, in that book compared to the uh, first yes. one? Yes. Uh, you know, I, I, I did it. I, in, the first edition, I, I did talk about uh, all the uh, memory and perceptual issues and so on and so forth. And there's been a lot of really good additional research and some very excellent books like The Invisible Gorilla that have come out to help educate people uh, about uh, decision making, the myth of multitasking. You, you think you're multitasking, but you're really not. What you're doing is you're forcing your brain to rapidly switch from one activity to another. And the more activities you add in there, the more each one is going to suffer and the more cues you're going to start missing. Uh, so uh, 
I expanded a lot on a lot of these sort of cognitive issues that people need to understand and, you know, pointing out that, sure, you have tunnel vision and uh, fragmented memory and, and uh, false memories and memory gaps in high stress situations. But you know what? You have those things 24 hours a day as well. A lot of people don't realize that a lot of these uh, cognitive issues affect everybody all the time. Uh, we don't realize just how little we're paying attention to our regular environment and how screwed up our memory for detail really is. Uh, but it's a lot more screwed up than we think it is. And because most of the time, it doesn't matter. Most of the time, no one really gives a rat's ass what you had for lunch or what you had for dinner or you know, what you were thinking of when you were driving home or exactly how long you spent at the grocery store. Um, and you, if you're challenging all these details, you're gonna have a lot of inaccuracies just in your daily life, but it, it doesn't matter, it's not important. However, if you get involved in an incident, now you will find in the aftermath, the devil will be in the details. And all of a sudden they wanna know exactly what happened from millisecond to millisecond. And uh, the same uh, memory issues that impact us in our daily lives that we don't even notice will become a huge issue if you ever get tangled up in the criminal justice system. And unfortunately, there is often a disconnect between the demands of the criminal justice system, which is tell us exactly what happened and the sequence that happened in versus how the human brain actually operates. And I believe the human brain is programmed for our survival in that it will remember the, the gist of the situation not the details, but the gist of the situation. It might remember some details and remember a few of them accurately, but it's more interested in the gist of the details, more or less what happened and our takeaway lesson for our future survival or performance. Those are the important things. The brain doesn't really care about all the, all the little details. But you know what? The criminal justice system can become extremely interested in those. Oh, yeah. Well, probably one thing that we've all been experienced with, if we've been driving for any amount of time, is a car accident to where, you know, they want to know, okay, well, how fast were you going? Where was this? Where was that, that person? And if you've had one, you know, you realize like, well, I really don't remember where they came from. And all of a sudden, boom, they hit you. And, and those are the types of things that, again, it's a fairly minuscule type of thing, an auto accident, because, you know, as long as everybody walks away from it, you know, it's, it's okay. It's not like a violent uh, encounter to where you're, you know, uh, having to shoot somebody, but it gives you a sense about how the mind works and, and what you're talking about, the, um, the attention to detail, you know, go along. And, uh, tonight my wife and me were driving to uh, dinner and we drove down the street one way and we drove back the other way. When we drove back the other way, it's like, I didn't realize they were building a new building there, but I didn't, I didn't remember seeing it when we went past it the first time. And sure, that's just because sure. I wasn't paying attention to it. I was that's paying attention to what was in the road. And I was, you know, I was juggling 10 different things between, you know, the speed I was going, braking, looking at where the traffic was, but I wasn't paying attention to, to the buildings that were around me. Just a right. perfect example of how my, where my attention is and, and what I remember and when. Yeah, and, that, and that's true for our brain 24 hours a day, seven days a week, whether we're asleep or awake, that's just how it is. And like I said, most of the time, nobody notices, most of the time, nobody cares. Uh, but you know, if, it, if anything that you're doing becomes a legal matter, then then it can become a big problem. And uh, you know, so it's really important that we understand how this works. It's really important that your attorney understand how this works. And it's really important uh, that the 
criminal justice needs to do a much better job recognizing uh, the limitations of the, of the human mind and not have these expecting people from officers to civilians to be have superhuman abilities that simply are not biologically possible. Mm-hmm. And let's put it this way. Officers have the added advantage that they deal with it every day. You know, they're walking up to somebody and they're, and they're, having a size up the situation, you know, I mean, what should right. I be doing? You know, can I see their hands? Can I see this? You know, they're kind of in that mode. So, which helps them process what's going on from a civilian standpoint, all of a sudden we see somebody coming in the door and it's threatening to us, you know, they got a knife or a good gun and we've got to make a split second decision. Are we going to think about, <coughs> Oh, excuse me. Think about everything that's going on um, right before that. And right after it, Probably not as much because we're going to be in complete overload at that point. Right. And a couple of other areas I touched on in my book that I really didn't in the first edition was I have a uh, uh, chapters on resiliency, including physical fitness, uh, the physical fitness part of it, the health and uh, wellness physically uh, is very important, critical for police officers who are basically athletes. Uh, you know, maybe if you've moved up into management, it's not as much of an issue, but if you're a street cop working the street, you are basically going to find yourself in what could be viewed as an athletic competition with a bad guy if you're trying to take them into custody and they're resisting and so on and so forth. So I included a lot of information research on physical conditioning and training. Uh, and uh, I also did a whole chapter on uh, the myth of the racist police officer. Uh, and, you know, Laura and I went back and forth on whether we should even include a chapter on that. Uh, and I thought, okay, there's been so many false accusations against cops, uh, accusing them of being racist thugs and racially motivated shootings. We have 40 years of research that shows that is absolutely not true. This is it's not just a study here and there. Multiple authors, uh, academicians have looked at it and they found there is no correlation between race and police use of force. The correlation is between crime rates and police activity, and that's it. And uh, there's no evidence that police uh, are racially motivated. And, you know, this is critical because especially, at, and I mean, the book was published in 2019, and I wrote, I wrote that chapter in about 2017. It was one of the first chapters I wrote because I knew it was going to be one of the most difficult because it's a very sensitive topic, and it was very important to get it right. And Laura and I went back and forth whether she'd include it, and I thought, well, you know, this is cops and citizens are getting hit by these uh, false uh, racism accusations all the time, and that's causing a tremendous amount of harm uh, to communities. You know, obviously it's causing harm to the officers, but it causes a lot of harm to the communities. The communities are the ones who end up suffering the most. And I thought, I, I think this is an important topic and I sort of felt like I would be ca- a coward if I didn't include it. Uh, so I stepped up to the plate and I wrote uh, a whole chapter on Uh, The survival bias, I call it the survival bias in decision-making, how uh, we, our brain is programmed to stereotype everything that we see in our environment. And I mean everything. 
when you're eating a banana, you have stereotyped that banana, you know what you're going to do with it. Uh, you stereotype everything. And, you know, the people who are pushing the racism meme may try to pretend like stereotyping is some kind of an evil that must be banished, uh, which is ridiculous because that's not how the brain works. You stereotype absolutely everything in your environment. You can't help not do that. And there are some good research scientists, even in academia, that point out uh, that this is how the brain works. It's one of the most consistent findings in the psychological literature that most of the stereotyping you do is reasonably accurate, uh, that your brain simply cannot make decisions without it. Uh, mm -hmm. And this whole implicit bias stuff uh, is ridiculous because uh, they want to pretend, you know, first, they came up with tests that, met, that are supposed to measure implicit bias, is what they called it. Uh, and of course, everybody has biases and everybody has implicit, a, a bazillion conscious and subconscious or implicit biases about every single thing that they look at. And you can't point to a decision that a person made and said, that one implicit bias, they may not even be aware of, that's the one thing that determined their behavior because our brain is full of implicit biases all operating at the same time. So just on the face of it, sheer logic and common sense would tell you if our brain is awash in implicit biases, how in the world do you think you can separate out one little implicit bias that you're not even directly measuring except by your test and claim that that's the only one that influenced what that person did. I mean, the whole thing is just a huge scam. Uh, mm -hmm. It is not just my personal opinion. Uh, I cite a lot of research in my book that shows that implicit bias is uh, not a valid concept and that implicit bias training does nothing to change people's behavior. And if it's not changing people's behavior, it's a complete waste of time and money. Yep, de definitely. It's, uh, it's Good information for people to have because here's a book that is you know factually based. You know, again, it's not it's not a, your opinion. It's you know you go you go and draw the facts out, and that's where I, I really like uh, reading it to go along and and point those uh, different things out because it's um, we yeah. if we're going to operate and train our students, we want to be on facts and not on opinions. There's you know opinions out there about everything, but it's the right. facts that are harder harder to find. Yeah, exactly, and you know. I this book is not the world according to Warren and Alexis. Uh, sure, we, we have some opinions in there and, you know, like the mindsets are things that I have, I've observed. I don't really cite any particular research on those things, but they're, they're common sense issues I want people to think about. But, you know, there is, you know, like 25 or 30 pages of research references. So, so it's heavily research-based. And I give everybody all the research references and strongly encourage them to look it up for themselves. Don't take my word for it. I, I think it's very healthy for everyone to always be a skeptic. Mm -hmm. I mean, the most important mindset you can develop is the skeptical mindset. Uh, and if people say, well, do X, Y, or Z, the question should be, well, how do you know what you think you know? Where is that coming from? Yeah, is, is that just your opinion? Uh, do you have some research to back it up? I mean, do you have some experiences? How do you know that what you're saying is true? Um, and if they can't answer that, uh, then you know you 
sort of want to take what they say with a grain of salt. Doesn't mean everyone's opinion is wrong, but we do have to, like you pointed out, separate opinion from fact. Everyone's entitled to an opinion, but they're not entitled to their own facts. So the facts need to be based on data and statistics and research. And in the book, I actually opened the book talking about this whole concept of, you know, how do you know what's true and what isn't true? And uh, how, how can you use the research? And I really encourage everyone to think of themselves as a scientist and have that skeptical, inquiring, show-me kind of mindset. Definitely. And that's where, um, again, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed reading the first book and then uh, the second book because uh, one of the things to uh, draw upon the USCCA's uh, training again, they go along and talk about how the mind can can so quickly identify a coil of rope as just being rope versus a coil of snake. And that's one of the things when you were talking about the implicit bias, you know, our, our minds are programmed so quickly that we don't even have to think snake or rope. The mind automatically tells us because it can look at it, process it before we can even think about anything else. And that's where, um, you know, having those things in our mind about what, what different things look like, give us the ability to process things a lot faster than if we truly sat there and looked at it. It's like, okay, what is that? And, you know, does it have a tail to it? Is it moving? Is it doing this or doing that? No subconscious instantly tells us what to do and tells us to jump back or, you know, pick it up and use it. You know, those types of things. Exactly. Right. Uh, well, um, I know we're running a little bit long, but I got one last question for you or topic that we'll get into. Uh, when it comes to the aftermath and the um, post events, I was reading that 65% of us go into a recovery mode after. Right. Can you can you explain that a little bit more? Uh, yeah. So, you know, sometimes when you read books about trauma or you hear people talk about it, there's almost like an assumption you get involved in a life and death incident, a, you know, a horrible car wreck or a deadly force encounter, or you go through, you know, a tornado and your house is destroyed that you're doomed to get post-traumatic stress disorder and be screwed up for the rest of your life. That's simply not true. And in fact, 65% of people uh, who experience traumatic incidents, uh, go right into recovery mode. In other words, they they start bouncing back almost immediately. Now, sure, everyone's going to experience some temporary disruption. That's that's completely normal. Uh, I liken it to if you fall down and break your leg, yeah, that's a temporary disruption. It's going to hurt. Uh, you're going to be in a cast for a while. You're going to hobble around with crutches for a while. Uh, but it's a, a tiny slice of your life that was very unpleasant. But in six weeks, the, about that cast is going to come off and uh, you're going to go into rehab. And usually within a few months, you're walking around with no problem whatsoever and the leg will completely heal and it will never bother you again. And I like it. Most traumas are like that. Yeah. They're temporarily disruptive. Uh, and, but the vast, but human beings are naturally resilient. You know, mm -hmm. think about our ancestors. Our ancestors had lives that were far more difficult than what we experience. 40 years old is old age, you know, 100, you know 150 old years ago. Yeah. You know, back in the uh, uh, 1800s, if you had six children, you would expect several, you know, at least one or two of them to die in childhood. That was just normal. You know, now today, if someone loses a child, a child dies, it's, uh, you know, kind of a big deal because our lives are so much safer now. Uh, mm -hmm. So, 
there's no way that we would have survived as a species if we weren't very, very tough and resilient. Uh, so yes, the natural state of people is resiliency and recovery. A small percentage of people do go on to develop post-traumatic stress disorder. Nobody knows exactly why. It's kind of like the brain, the mind uh, goes into hyper-vigilant, hypersensitive, freak-out mode, which is normal during the event. I mean, you expect that. Uh, for most people, the nervous system then pretty quickly resets back to normal. For some reason, we don't know why, uh, in a small percentage of people, uh, typically, if you're looking at you know long-term chronic cases, in the neighborhood of maybe around 10 to 15 percent of people develop chronic PTSD. For some reason, their nervous system just has a lot of difficulty resetting back to normal, and they start experiencing these PTSD symptoms. Uh, and so, for those people who do have that, and it's probably a genetic susceptibility, uh, they just need to you know, find a trauma specialist and try to get treatment uh, because we do have treatments that can help ameliorate the symptoms. But for most people, recovery is normal. Mm -hmm. yeah. well, without treatment, without a debriefing, without treatment, simply the standard everyday support from friends and family members, they're going to be just fine. Yeah. Well, as I go along and explain to people, you know, a lot of times when it comes to being a concealed carry instructor and such is, you know, we go along, we cut ourselves with a knife, you know, at home when we're slicing the apple and things like that. Those things we put a Band-Aid on and, and it heals itself. If we go along and cut ourselves really bad, what do we have to do? We have to go see a specialist to have that stitched up and, you know, put stitches in it and things like that. Same thing when it comes to, you know, traumatic stress, you know, from a mental standpoint. We, right. we might be able to heal ourselves, but, you know, when it's not healing properly, right. that's when we've got to go out and seek, you know, professional help to go along and help us, you know, stitch our brain back together and heal it um, so that we can live, live a normal life. Exactly right. Very well put. So that is uh, really, really great. And it's been a great honor, Alexis, to have you on. I can't tell you how, how great it is to be talking to you. So. <laughs> well, any, any time, Mom, I'm happy to come back whenever. Okay. Well, hey, we've been asking all our guests this year to give our uh, audience members here just a little idea. What kind of books are you reading um, to, for professional or personal enrichment? Uh, right now, I'm really focusing on uh, the uh, pilots and the aviators in World War II, especially in the Southwest Pacific area. Uh, one of my favorite books, it was just an awesome book, it's called Race of Aces by John Bruning. And uh, he, you know, I, I had some interest in that because my father was a fighter pilot in the Southwest Pacific area. And uh, that was kind of the backwater of World War II. It became very important uh, but because they were in kind of the backwater, they had horrible living conditions. Uh, they had terrible equipment for quite a while. Uh, they were constantly fighting for equipment, fighting for parts, fighting for fuel. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, the ingenuity, the resiliency, the endurance, the stamina, the fortitude, the guts, the courage of these young men, uh, was really phenomenal. And this book really gives a, a detailed insight into the living conditions and the character. I mean, sure, the combat scenes are thrilling. Uh, the book focuses on uh, 
some of the people, the, the famous World War II aces that came out of that, I mean, a lot of you know, modern people probably haven't heard of them, but they're very famous in the aviation community. And, uh, but he really, John does, John Bruning does a great job of delving into the character of these people and uh, just the overall uh, stuff that they endured. And of course, you know, the, the fighter pilots are, have been less portrayed, uh, let's say, than some of the Marines in invading Ijima. I've also read a lot of stuff on that as well. Why am I interested in this? Because these books, and, that, and including some of the fictional literature that has been written, if you want to really understand what people are going through, read about their experiences, either their memoirs or read the fictional literature, especially written by people who've been there or done a lot of research. Uh, Honestly, uh, these books have given me far more insight to the human psyche than any psychology book I've ever read. Mm -hmm. Just a real quick question. Have you ever read any books on the Flying Tigers uh, over in Pacific? Uh, I have not yet, but I'm, I'm very much looking forward to doing that. It's very interesting because Colonel Chenault, who uh, went over there, they were a bunch of independent Americans that flew for the Chinese, if right. uh, the, our listeners aren't familiar with it. And they took the um, F-4 Tomahawks, I think, that were slower um, than the Japanese Zeros. And I read a book that goes along and really shows their ingenuity because they figured out that these things were boat anchors compared to the uh, zeros, except for one thing, they could take a beating and still keep, and still keep uh, ticking. So they, they evolved their tactics around going along and basically getting shot, shot at, and then basically being able to turn around and just blasting them out out of the air, which of course history shows that the zeros didn't, were not heavily armed or anything else like that. And we're very susceptible to, you know, just a couple shots, uh, bringing them down. So, uh, you know, it's one of those things where you touched on a very interesting point because I've, uh, I found World War II, both over in Europe and in the Pacific being just, uh, amazing to hear how things were done, you know, to overcome supply line problems and, and equipment problems and everything else like that. So, yeah, that's a very neat topic to, to be, yeah, uh, to be reading about. A lot of these guys went for sometimes for years without uh, with little or no contact with their family members. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're in you're in the South Pacific. It's not like you know they got FedEx or or you know uh, email or anything else like that. Like we you know expect today. I mean, a letter could take months to get home, and replies <laughs> could take months back the other way too. If they knew where you were at, because also in the South Pacific, the U.S. was in island hopping. And, you know, so many small islands, you go, you're one month, you're one island, then a couple months later, two or three islands away, and they had to forward the mail to them. So very, very interesting. Yeah, I find that the World War II literature, especially um, to be very educational uh, into the warrior mindset and human spirit, and also very, very inspiring. Definitely. They are, uh, all our veterans are, uh, great heroes. But when you look at the, uh, World War II veterans that were there and what they truly had to deal with, um, that, that took some additional grit that, uh, I wish we had more of in society today. Exactly right. Uh, well, Dr. Outwall, where can instructors find more about you, um, besides buying a copy of your book? Oh, uh, well, I do, I do have a website, alexisartwall.com. And, uh, you know, so I, I, have a little bit of information on there if they want to find out more information and uh, you know, they they're welcome to contact me through my website and I'll be happy to answer questions. 
Okay, great. And I will include uh, links to these books and also your website in our show notes as always. So thank you. Thank you for coming on. Great. Well, that's a wrap for this episode. I have a few requests for our loyal listeners. If you have any ideas, questions, or feedback, please email us at ftp at concealedcarry.com. Visit our sponsors, especially the Firearms Trainers Association at ftaprotect.com and check out their instructor insurance. Being a responsible instructor means having insurance coverage, both for you and your students. Remember, use promo code FTP10 for 10% off. Rate our podcast and leave us a review on iTunes or Google Play. And remember, share this episode on Facebook. Twitter, Instagram, whatever you use, and encourage others to listen. Remember, if they're not listening to us, then they won't get great interviews like this with uh, Dr. Alexis Artwell and the great information she's passing on uh, to them. Remember, we bring you this podcast to support the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every firearm instructor in America that dedicates time and energy into making gun owners more knowledgeable. Stay safe, everyone out there. Concealed Carry Inc. and ConcealedCarry.com strives to share helpful information and education about gun-related topics, training tips, and other things that may potentially have legal implications for its listeners. The information contained in this podcast is intended in good faith, but it is important to understand that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand laws that apply to them. Nothing in this podcast should be misconstrued as legal advice or counsel.